and you incorporate the perception of like wrinkles and detail and material level, you get the detail without adding any weight to the model. And now you've got a highly detailed product that can be used in a product page or on a, you know, on a website or in a planner. So every, a lot of people in the space and a lot of innovation going on, it's like, okay, well, how do I get a really performant asset without, you know, creating a lot of overhead? Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now, here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at the independent ERP and digital transformation consulting firm, Elevate IQ. 3D should always be better than 2D experience, especially for the furniture and home goods industry. This industry also has one of the highest return rate, even if there might not be anything fundamentally wrong with the product. Sometimes it's the perception of the measurement or fabric that might turn off some of the customers. The 3D experience allows companies not only to help their customers visualize the product, but it also helps in increasing back size as the furniture may not appear so well without the right limbs or the art. But creating 3D experience is very expensive. It requires planning and building quality assets or the 3D experience is likely to fire back because of the perception of poor quality. In today's episode, our guest, Back B. Sacker, shares his insights into how brands can start their 3D experience journey. He also shares his insights into the entire process of what is involved in creating the 3D assets and which roles are likely to be involved. Finally, he talks about several tools used in the process and how the new trends may be driving the 3D space. Let me introduce back to you. Back B. Sacker is the co-founder and CEO of 3D Cloud by Mark Sant. Previously, Back spent 13 years building interactive marketing solutions for Fortune 500 retailers and brands, including Target Stores and Tesco. In 1999, he founded Copient Technologies now NCR AMS, which was acquired by NCR in 2003. Back then served as EVP of new business at Catalina Marketing. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hey, Back, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Of course. And uh, I am super excited to discuss this topic. Obviously, this is fascinating and fairly new to our listeners. So this is going to be so interesting. Just to kick things off, do you want to start with your uh, personal story and your current focus back? Sure. So our background, when I say our, uh, my brother, Barry, is sort of yeah. my lifelong uh, business partner. We, um, we've we always been in uh, marketing technology, um, okay. uh, had our first company in the late 90s and said, uh, and sold that and then uh, uh, started another company, sold that. So this is sort of our, our third um, company together. Our focus has always been around marketing technology and content management. 
Okay. And, and sort of the intersection of those two. So today, uh, MarkSense is, uh, we call our product a 3D cloud. Uh, we've been around for 10 years. We're one of the very early companies in the 3D, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality. Yeah product configurator space and uh, uh, work with a lot of major uh, retail clients as well. And, and, uh, but yeah, our current focus is how to bring 3d to the uh, e-commerce shopping experience. Yeah. And uh, 3d is obviously, I mean, there is so much uh, happening overall in the 3d space, in the virtual reality space, as well as in the product configurator space. So it's always fascinating uh, how that is going to change the customer experience. So we'll dig into all of that. But before we do that, we have one of the standard questions that we ask every single guest, and that is going to be your perspective on business growth. So the the way we think about the future is this, that eventually every single product page on the internet, yeah, uh, 3D is always better than 2D. And so as the as as the, the technology matures, it's yeah. able to be performance that uh, the quality and visual, uh, the, the representation of the product can be achieved in a 3D experience. We expect that everywhere you use photos today will ultimately be replaced by 3D. And I um, we believe that for a long time, but um, I think, you know, many, many retailers and manufacturers are starting to believe that now as well there's a lot of other benefits outside of just i mean 3d in and of itself it's about that there's benefits both in terms of like interactivity yeah conversion rates but there's a yeah. tremendous value in uh cost savings and and maintenance of a visual asset um you know not having to constantly redo photography it make it much more of a data-driven experience so our expectation is that we're in the first year or two of 10 years of really strong growth in this space. Okay, very interesting. And I completely agree with you that 3D is always going to be better than 2D just from the customer experience perspective. But every customer experience that we are going to be talking about is going to have the cost as well as effort involved in that. So obviously we need to dig into that. You know, I don't know how much effort is going to be required and let's say if I am the manufacturing CFO and I am trying to understand, okay, what is going to be required? Let's say I have 200,000 SKUs. <laughs> and if I have 200,000 SKUs, then we are looking at, I don't know, 200,000 3D models, I guess. Or maybe if I have variant of those, then probably a million combination there. So I don't know. I mean, see, do you want to describe in terms of the process, how the process works? Let's say if a manufacturer has never explored 3D before. Sure. So the first thing is that while and it's a pretty bold statement that 3D will be everywhere 2D is today, you know, in, in eight to 10 years. But that said, um, you can't, there isn't demonstrated product market fit for 3D everywhere yet. So for instance, 3D for something like, you know, furniture and, and, you know, kitchen and bath, the places where we largely work in the home. Yeah. There's an obvious use case, right? Is it going to fit? Is it going to match? Do I need to configure something to kind of, you know, to see it in 3D or see it in my space? Yeah. So there's a, and that's the reason we're in the home vertical. Yeah. And if you look where we do kitchen, bath, decking, furniture, office, and closets, and those are all categories yeah. that share a common theme. And it's right to your point, which is first, the cost of creating those 3D assets for those exactly. categories. Yeah. 
uh, there's a relatively long shelf life once you do it. So if you make a half a million dollar investment or a million dollar investment in content, you can, you know, amortize that over a long period of time. Think about, you know, decking doesn't change that often. Furniture, you get about a 30% turnover. You know, kitchens, you know, can stay in inventory for 10 plus 20 years. And so the reason we selected these categories is because of that dynamic. Yeah. That once you invest, you can amortize. Now, if you go to a category, let's say like handbags as an example. Yeah. So the cost of creating a really high quality visual asset for a handbag, let's say it's $500. Exactly. If that, so you got two questions that need to be answered. One is, do keep people really want a handbag in 3D? Like what is the problem you're solving? Exactly. Is it more, now look, if it only costs 10 cents to create that 3D model and you got a 0.0005%, you know, conversion rate increase, and that was across a billion transactions, it makes sense. Right. But if you're yeah. getting a small conversion rate, a high cost of content, and the product is going to be out of inventory in three months, you know, the unit economics of that don't work. And so the first question to be asked is, yeah, what are the categories where cost of content, shelf life of content, yeah. and the consumer value proposition all kind of make sense and 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 go there? So that's that's really what we're spending a lot of time doing is thinking about okay what's the next set of categories exactly you know do we need shampoo bottles in 3d right and what's the use case and do you want to pay for it so but yeah that's the trick is figuring out those sort of uh uh you know sort of uh points of convergence into whether you can build a business model around it yeah and honestly speaking when you look at let's say if you are going to be creating these models in in 10 cents i don't know which designer is going to work on that and by the way you see the whole idea of this is going to be to improve the customer experience. And if you are spending only 10 cents, I don't know how that experience is going to be. So I don't know whether you typically recommend when customers are working on these things, then your goal is going to be to have something that is going to be really demonstrable. For example, let's say if you look at, you know, kitchen furniture category, in those cases, the dollar amount that you're going to have for each of the product is going to be much higher. And in anything that is probably going to be related to Real estate, my in my mind, I can see application of 3D, and that's where 3D is used a lot. Yeah, these days real estate agents are actually using this in the home setting as well, right? Yeah, and some of it has to do. So there's a lot of stuff that's like happening in the space where I'd say, generally speaking, there are many, many, many companies from Google to Apple to you know to Microsoft to Adobe to big you know big you know multi 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 billion you know dollar companies that are all have a vested interest in this space. And, right. and thank God for that because they're investing in technology to allow you to, you know, like NVIDIA is working on a pretty interesting technology where you can create a 3D model from a 2D image and using hmm. AI. And so some of these other categories where there's not like a great product market fit, but it's fully automated to create the 3D asset, you could see if, if you might get like a little more traction. You're also seeing some of the categories Things that are geometric, like floors, yeah. uh, uh, cabinets, closets, those are all done what's called parametrically, where there are actually no 3D models. You're just using data, depth, width, height, profiles, and finishes, and you're actually generating the content in real time. Yeah. And there's actually very low cost of, of content. So there's some other categories. So I think there's, there's a lot of people working on a lot of different technologies to kind of, it, it's safe to say that the cost of content will continually go 
towards zero over time, which will open up a lot of these other categories. Yeah, that would be ideal. I mean, see, if I could create content and like zero dollars, okay, oh my goodness. I mean, for manufacturers, I guess that's going to be awesome. But I don't know the quality of the automated content because in my mind, when I look at any of the 3D models, typically when people interact with 3D models, they are doing two things. Number one, they are trying to educate themselves through the product. That is number one. Number two, let's say if they run into any sort of issues and they are trying to, let's say, locate the part, uh, that is also one category in which the 3D models are used. And if you are going to have some sort of misrepresentation of the product and they are trying to sort of learn from it, and then obviously the customer experience is not going to be there. So I don't know, uh, you know, how good these automated tools are going to be with that 3D experience. Have you run into any sort of issues in your experience or are they good enough, close enough? Uh I, we, we've, we've not seen for the categories that we work in today. So I'll give you a, for instance, like, um, it's funny. My son's working on a Eagle Scout project for Boy Scouts. Yeah. And, uh, he's doing it, working with a local museum and he's using, uh, LIDAR uh, technology. Yeah. Uh, to, to do scanning of these like statues and they're like really detailed. You know, something that would cost thousands of dollars to 3D model by hand, but he can use photogrammetry to capture the image and and upload it. And yeah. it's really impressive, like off of an iPhone. It's very, 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 very good. So the 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 other sort of contributing variable to content is going to be users themselves. Yeah. And is this this will get faster and easier? And you know, it's like, and I'm sure this is. I mean, Apple hasn't really said it publicly, but my view of why they're investing in this space has very little to do with, you know, furniture and other kind. It has a lot to do with sharing 3D models the way we share photos. Like that's the, the capture part is what, you know, they're really investing in. So that will come. However, those monolithic models that you capture through, you know, um, scanning yeah. are not going to work well in like a configuration tool because one big part of making something performant on a website is yeah. being able to share. Like if I have two geometries that share the same finish, yeah, like a leather material, yeah, they need to be. You shouldn't be sending that material twice. You should, you know, sort of apply it at runtime. And so, so even though you can do scanning and capture, that doesn't always mean you can use that asset to be able to power a configurator or whatever you're doing in a way that's actually going to work on a browser. And so. There's still quite a bit of, like, we think of like 3D models as like the, the atomic components of an asset. And then you would only have one brown leather in the, in the PIM. Why do you need, you know, because you'd apply it to lots of different geometries. And so creating those data models that allow you to communicate and compile 3D models from lots yeah. of different assets is, is actually more important than the capture experience. Okay, so let's say, let's take an example of a designer. So let's say if I'm the designer who is working on this project, if you are going to mm -hmm. give me that, okay, create these models for 200,000 different SKUs, then obviously I'm probably going to feel a little overwhelmed. So let's say if we, uh, you know, do this using the automated process where we are going to get, you know, some basic framework. And in that, the problem is going to be that one of the layers is probably going to be a problem that cannot really work on the website. So let's say if I am the designer and the only thing I'm doing is I am simply designing that layer and rest of the model I am using from my automated generated model, can I do that? And that is probably going to reduce the amount of effort as well as the cost. 
Can I do that or not? Uh, kind of. You're going to have to operate within a spec. And so, like, okay. what we'll do today is we have the product is called the 3D Cloud, and it's like a, basically a 3D PIM. Yeah. And there's a workflow layer on top of that where lots of different people contribute to the creation of a virtual product. So let's say you're a 3D modeler and you're working yeah. within our system. You'll check out, let's say, a couch. Okay. And then your job is to create that geometry. But it's going to be somebody else's job to create the material. And then it's going to be some, a third party person's job to create the, the behavioral data or metadata associated with that product. And so what happens is you get these like multiple parallel work streams yeah. and then they come together to create the, the virtual product. But in order for those work streams all work together, all, all the parties have to work within, you know, a certain spec so that they can work. So for instance, if you submit the model and it's a million triangles yeah. for the geometry and yeah. the spec calls for 60,000, it's not going to work on a web environment. And so, you know, it's not as easy, you know, it, like this idea of like, hey, let's just open up these systems and let everybody contribute. Yeah. Doesn't really work. You can't have independent contributors, you know, working off of, you know, outside of a spec and expect to get a high quality asset that's going to work in a specific app. So you well, ha everybody's got to be within a rule set, so to speak, to make these things work. Okay. So what am I missing here? Because see, one time you said that, you know, these 3D models are probably going to cost $500, but now we are talking about 3D modeler. We are talking about material designer, and this sounds like a very, very expensive people. So I don't know how much time they have to invest in creating these assets. So how is this possible in $500? Let's say if I'm trying to sell a piece of furniture, you know, so how much time are we looking at for each of the models that we are trying to create for each of the category and how many personas are going to be involved in creating that? So step one to do it efficiently okay. is you have, you have to... Uh, step one, look for the maximum amount of reuse that you okay. can find, right? And so, so you know, if a couch say, shares much of the same geometry as like a settee or another chair and you yeah. can repurpose that, you need to find that out and build that connection at the data later so that you can understand sharing those parts of those geometries so that'll make it faster. Then you want to see how much you can, can share of material so they don't get recreated. Okay. So really, the, the 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 so you have to break everything down into its component parts. Figure out the lowest common denominator of assets you actually have to create. Yeah. And then use those assets to create the final product skew in an automated way. That's how you do it efficiently. Is is for instance, office chairs is a good. The amount of reusability in office chairs. Yeah. Is tremendous, right? And so it's really not. That the cost of modeling is one component, but the real the reason you get efficient is at the data level, so that you can combine the the assets together in an efficient way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And you know that is no different than to be honest. I mean, if you are doing manufacturing, then you have to go to the common denominator, or you are doing uh, you know yeah. ERP implementations or web implementation. They all uh, you know follow sort of the the similar approach that you need to go to the foundational component and then uh, you go to the your upstream component and then uh, sort of trace that, right? But when we are looking at this reusability, and I don't know if this, these reusable components are going to be available in the market, open source, can you reutilize something? Because my office chair and somebody else's office chair in the market is probably going to be similar. So are there any sort of frameworks or template that these designers can use and that can probably reduce some uh, time there. Yeah, I mean, there there is uh, there's several different uh, groups of uh, forums and standards 
that um, I mean, largely people have, I mean, just sort of naturally because of, you know, Adobe tools and and Maya and, and other existing tools in the market, like OBJ and FBX file formats have become yeah. kind of the standard for like runtime assets. And then people do things within their own infrastructures and create variants and so forth. But like, you know, OBJ, FBX and USDZ and GLB. And so there is kind of like a base standard. Uh, that's starting to emerge in the market that if you hired somebody to do 3D modeling, they're going to know how to create, you know, one of the two or three, four, you know, most popular types of assets. Then then um, the next step of will be, well, what's the use case uh, for that asset, right? And that'll determine sort of the size and level of definition for the asset, level yeah. of detail that you can create. If you're going to use it for photography replacement, you could have a, you know, a million triangle you know, million polygon couch is perfectly fine because you're going to yeah. flat down and turn it into a photo. If you're going to use it in a room planner, you know, you got to use something much smaller. So then there's this like management of variance based on which application type is going to be used. But I, I think the idea that, you know, they'll emerge a quality use case standard in the market that everybody can kind of play in and interoperate. Well, I mean, that's inevitable. And you, I mean, like CG Trader and some of these other companies are are creating these sort of marketplaces just like we did for photos a long time. Very interesting. So now let's uh, take this, uh, you know, discussion to a different, uh, you know, level because when you are creating these models, obviously somebody has to manufacture those as well. And then they have to talk the same language when you are creating, let's say, the configurator, you know, whatever you are going to configure, that has to go to your manufacturing floor. The engineering needs to approve that as well, that whatever model is going to be applicable from their perspective. It's really going to, you know, work on the production floor. It's going to have some sort of legs. So typically, you know, they are probably going to be doing the design in some sort of CAD software or, uh, you know, I don't know the, the, the software that you use. Do you guys have any sort of overlap when you design? Can you give it to engineering and they are going to take it as is or are they going to modify anything? How does that most of the, work? Yeah, most of the time, the, uh, you know, if a manufacturer is using 3D modeling, they, you know, they're going to be using CAD tools. Yeah. And, and so a CAD is going to be the most, the highest detailed represent, representation of the features of the product that you can get. Yeah. Then those are going to be simplified into like, uh, what they call it, like a runtime model or a mid poly model that's game art that you could use on a browser. You're not going to use a, a CAD model like on a browser in a mobile application. So usually the order of events is, you know, from CAD yeah. to a high to a high poly game or a high poly model that you could use for photography replacement. Yeah. And then that gets decimated down into uh, like a game art model that you can use in a, uh, an application on a browser. So it's like CAD to photography replacement, high poly to mid yeah. poly spec. That's usually the order of events that these models are are built. And there are tools, by the way. I mean, we can convert from a CAD, and you could convert. It's called decimation, where you just take you take a high poly model, and then you can simplify it into a, a mid poly model or a low yep. poly model. And then the content management system needs to sort of have all this history and, and variant types, and to understand you know where they're going to be used. So very interesting. So just to be clear, let's say if I'm looking at, if I'm the manufacturing company, then obviously I'm probably going to have some sort of CAD model if I'm the engineering shop or the manufacturing shop. So let's say if the only thing I'm trying to do is I am trying to convert all of these models into my configurator, the only thing I need to do is I can take these CAD models and you already mentioned that there are tools out there 
that can convert into high low polys uh, and once that is converted then you know the only effort is going to be involved in replacing these images that are going to be pretty for the browser right or is there anything else there no i mean it, the, the, there aren't there are categories like like um products that have like hard surfaces so imagine like a table or a desk yeah. or something like that yeah your ability to use these conversion tools is going that this level of success you'll have without having to have like a human go in and and modify the asset depends on the category of product so for instance if you have like a um let's say like a leather sofa that has like a lot of detail or wrinkles right or right. maybe it's like a distressed finish or something like that like you're probably not going to have the same success converting from a cat asset to a high poly asset to a mid poly asset to a low poly asset you're probably going to have to have an artist go in there and sort of and maybe clean it up or do some other process and so you know, you kind of have to start batching your models into, okay, which which process, which system, which converter can I use to go from, you know, CAD to high poly all the way down? And they're not all going to go through the same workflow, but but there are different tools that you can use for different types of product sets. Very interesting. So why is there a challenge in specific categories? Is it just the type of material and because of that, the dimension is sort of changing? Is that the reason? What is the major reason why? Some categories do well and some categories don't. So if you have something that let's let's imagine you've got like a uh, Victorian sofa, right? Okay. And it's got all this carving on the wood, right? Yeah. And it's got, yeah. you know, you know how you like when you upholster something and you put like a button on it and it makes that little tuft and, you know, you've got all this like detail and, and oh, maybe you've got like those little tassels that hang off the end or, you know, so you've got all this detail. Yeah. And that detail is what makes the product the product, right? That's what somebody exactly. wants to buy. Yep. And so if I simplify it with the tool, I may actually simplify out the detail that you want to show the right. customer. Right. And and so there's some, but if I leave that detail in there, it's going to be too big a model to actually go onto a website. So you have all these like conversion problems. So one, uh, this is really interesting one. So imagine like a really detailed sofa with a lot of wrinkles in it, right? Yeah, yeah. And and the if I actually tried to put in all that detail into the geometry right. of the object, yeah, it would be a huge object and it would I be know. so many megabytes you couldn't send. But yeah. there are all these other techniques that are emerging, like, well, you know what? Let's leave the geometry alone and keep it at a mid poly, sixty thousand yeah. triangles. And let's let's um let's put the detail in the material layer. Okay. Which doesn't have any weight. And so if you put the material on the geometry and you incorporate the perception of like wrinkles and detail and material level, you get the detail without adding any weight to the model. And now you've got a highly detailed product that can be used in a product page or on a, you know, on a website or in a planner. So every, a lot of people in the space and a lot of innovation going on. It's like, okay, yeah. well, how do I get a really performant asset without, you know, creating a lot of overhead? in the asset and so lots of lots of people clever people are figuring out new ways to uh thread the needle if you will very interesting so let's uh you know i i know that you had a story that you wanted to discuss and you know that probably will uh illustrate the process in terms of how to sort of start on this process let's say if i'm doing this for the first time so you had a, a case study and a story of i don't know if you are going to share for uh yeah Macy's, so we work right? yeah so we work with uh ashley furniture uh macy as you mentioned uh lazy boy yeah uh Bob, bob's furniture drones uh we work with uh 
Lowe's as a client. We work with a lot of big, yeah. you know, multi-billion dollar, you know, uh, home good retailers. And so we've been at this for about 10 years. Yeah. And um, we actually wrote the very first AR app for the App Store in November of 2011. So that was before it had the, the AR augmented reality name. So we've, we've, you know, for better or worse, we've been at the very beginning of this and seen yeah. it mature over time. And and Macy's is a really good example. So Macy's was, um, so this is circa 2018 or so. So pretty early in this stage. Right. And so, so Macy's has a, you know, multi-billion dollar furniture business. Uh, they're in 400 locations around the world. Yeah. Um, they really wanted to, um, what they have really good store associates, but they actually don't have a design program. Like, like an interior design program. Yeah, yeah. And so they were looking for a way to create a set of experiences using 3D yeah. that would really allow a store associate who really is like a salesperson yeah. to be more than just a salesperson, to be somebody that could actually consult with and work with a consumer on their vision. And so uh, so we've 3D modeled uh, over 15,000 uh, Macy's products over the course of a couple of years. You know, you start with your best sellers and and then, you know, you add more categories over time. And and so the first thing they did was launch a uh, room planning experience on an iPad um, that it, uh, they installed in ultimately over a couple hundred stores. And then the way it would work is a consumer would come in and and the the store associate would sort of get their dimensions and drag and drop into their space. And once yep. they were done building the room, you could put on a VR headset and actually walk around your room as part of the experience. And so they do several million dollars a month today through this experience yep. using designers or the store associates working with consumers. But what was interesting is these aren't always like, hey, I'm building, you know, an entire room. A lot of the times there were very simple use cases like would this brown couch look good against a blue wall or right. or is this the right rug for the size of uh, dining room table that i have and they're very simple five minute use cases and we and we found the the store associates got very creative and innovative around like how do i help somebody build confidence in their purchase so they you know don't leave the store without without making a purchase so so we've done that for Macy's. It's been very successful. I've uh, been working with them for five plus years now. They also took those same 3D assets. Yeah. And they have a very, very popular e-commerce app that's, you know, probably top 30, if not top 10 in the U.S. And we work with them to create a uh, an SDK that allowed them to distribute uh, AR via their uh, e-com app as well. And then eventually they also launched the room planning experience. Uh, to consumers so they could do this at home as well and be much more of like a self-service experience. And so Macy's has been a good, I mean, they were bleeding edge. I mean, the first enterprise-wide rollout of VR in the history of retail. So they were really innovative and cutting edge. Now, of course, a lot of other retailers have followed with AR and room planning and and so forth and so on. But, um, you know, it was a, you know, it was a good, you know, two year process to go from sort of the beginning stages to a real enterprise solution that would scale. Yeah. Yeah. So very interesting use case and the story there. So my assumption in this particular case is going to be it's not that they transformed all of their product or product categories. They are probably uh, trying with some of the categories where the experience is going to make real sense. And that's where you are probably going to have enough margins 
to be able to accommodate that. So in this particular case, when you are looking at these virtual rooms, obviously that's where they are going to be able to sell multiple products. And that's where I guess the experience is going to be really handy. Yeah. What we saw was on the room planning tools, we we see very consistently a 60 to 100 percent increase in average order value. You're just buying more things yeah. together like it's and if a store associate, oh, look how nice this rug looks with the couch you just looked at. Like it's just a, it's an easy way to sort of increase uh, basket size. Yeah. Um, we also saw have about a 25 percent improvement in product returns which makes sense too, because now you get a chance to check for fit before you right. get at home and realize that it's not going to be the right size. So that was a big impact. For Augment's reality, interestingly enough, AR is really, the the core use case is really about fit. It has, right. it, people are using it as a proxy for pulling out a measuring tape. Right. And so for instance, when we have a client come to us and say, we want to do AR, and if they say, we want to do lamps and mirrors and those kind of like decor items, we typically discourage that and encourage them to look at like dining room sets and big living room sets and sectionals and sofa. Big large items yeah. are going to be the most popular items in AR. Now we see today we see if, if augmented reality is on a product page as an option to view in a room, it gets used about 30% of the time. If you use it, you're three times more likely to convert. So, and of course that varies by different categories and so forth. But the the utility and return on investment in doing AR is now you know completely self-evident. But to your point, you still want to pick which categories you spend money modeling on. Yeah. And you don't want to model something you know is not going to be an in inventory in three months. You know, so exactly. So obviously I want you to touch on that point a little bit more because I know you have spoken about that on uh a number of, uh, you know, occasions on, on this episode itself. So why is that the inventory shelf life is important? It's just because of the reusability of the models, I guess, because that money is just going to be wasted. Is that uh, the case? Yeah, we, we've, you know, we've on a few occasions where we'll 3D model something that a, uh, like, let's say you have a new spring introduction, right? Yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll 3D model something, then it goes to market, it's a new product for them, and then they find out it's not a very good seller. Right. And they discontinue the product and then the, the model gets discontinued, too. So right. so most of our clients like will wait to 3D model. Well, first of all, they'll do the most popular items because that's, you know, sort of self-evident. Yeah. But a lot of a lot of retailers like like Macy sells this um, uh, Ridley sofa that they've had an inventory for years. It's very popular. It's one of the best sellers. And so so we really we try to help um, help retailers like, OK, like, let's say you wanted to do AR, like, and you've right. never done 3D before in your life. Right. Like, we wouldn't tell you to 3D model 5,000 products. We'd say, let's start with 500, right? And, and like, really make sure we're proving out the unit case. But if you're doing a room planner, you really need to do, like, two 2,500 or 3,000 models because you have to have enough inventory for consumers to create a good user experience. Right, right. So depending upon the application, if you only had a limited budget and you said, I want to do a room planner, but I can only afford 500 models. I'd say, well, you know what? Let's step back a second and think about starting with augmented reality. Yeah. You can get, because you don't have to spend the same amount on modeling because you can do a fewer assets and still get a good return on investment. So we're finding ourselves in the stage now of we have enough data to go, all right, you know, helping our clients pick the right solution for the budget. And like, here's another example. If you want to do a room planning tool, yeah, 
and you and you don't have an interior design team, then you're saying it's largely going to be used by consumers at home. Right. Well, that's a different value proposition than if you have an interior design team and you can leverage the investment across e-commerce plus your virtual design team. Right. You, you're you're get more of the benefit, and so. So we try to help our clients like, okay, what do you look like? What's your goal? How do you go to market? What's the price point of your product? Which application yep. should you use? So we're doing more and more of that now as, as the market begins. To, you know, the industry is is obviously maturing. So that's really interesting. And now I actually wanted to seek your perspective overall in this uh, whole concept of metaverse, right? So here, when you talk about AR, VR and modeling, your room planning tool, you are talking about modeling just a very little concept. And in that itself, you are talking about millions of dollars of investment to be able to enable that experience, right? But now, when we think of metaverse, in that, you are modeling pretty much the whole world. <laughs> so I don't know how expensive that is going to be. So do you think that's a, you know, that's going to be realistic? Uh, do companies have enough investment or the return on uh, whatever they are going to invest to be able to create these experience stores? And is metaverse going to be feasible in the next five, 10 years, unless some advancement in technology happens or the right now, I mean, we are probably going to be challenged with the bandwidth as well. After 5G, maybe it's going to be easier. But right now, technology investment, do you see Metaverse as the feasible concept? So I'm 50 now, just to give you a little bit of context. <laughs> uh, I was answering these same questions. So when we started our first company in 1997, you know, so, you know, I was you know, 27 or something like that. Yeah. And, yeah. and listening to everybody, it, the, the conversation feels a lot like the conversation I was having about the internet, you know, right, right. that those many years ago. And is this really going to work? Are people really in? And so I find my, while I was incredibly enthusiastic in 1997 as a <laughs> young person, like yeah. moving into business and being yeah. an entrepreneur, like, I was over the moon, right? I was the guy, the most bullish person you could find, right? Yeah. Now that I'm 50 and the metaverse conversation is coming out, I find myself being a little bearish, but I, I'm not sure if it's because I really feel bearish or I'm just older now and the idea it comes of with age. <laughs> taking on a whole new thing is like, cause we've, we started this company in 2011 and I've lived through AR, VR, you know, XR, like all the different, you know, I've yeah. had every, I've had Google Glass, I've had, you know, Magic Leap, I've had every version of Oculus, I've had HTC, I have, my office is littered with every device that was hyped and excited about. So, um, so to me, here, here's how I kind of think about the metaverse. I mean, yeah. when you have an environment that has hundreds and hundreds of 3D assets in it, and you're on like a browser, yeah, like there's, there's a weight to that. There's a reason that you know, Minecraft and Roblox looks like cartoons because they're limiting the poly count so they can have an environment that can be highly performant with, you know, low overhead assets. Right. So if you're a retailer and you're like, let's imagine your restoration hardware. Yeah. Who more than any other company, I mean, maybe the cares about the visual fidelity of their product, right? It's an yeah. exact representation of their product and it's a $30,000 couch and the thing has to look pristine. Like what is your, what's your value proposition in the metaverse? Like, are you going to have a cartoon couch, you know, in the Zuckerberg's metaverse? Like that's not going to be. Now, if you're a Nike shoe 
and you're abstracting it into a cool cartoon 3D model yeah. that represents the Nike brand and it's cool and it's awesome and it shoots fire and you got, you know, wings on it or whatever. Yeah. Like that makes sense, right? You're kind of yeah. like, okay, I'm Nike and I'm being cool and I'm in a game art environment. That makes sense. But the idea that the home industry is just going to create digital twins of all of their products and find themselves in the metaverse as a branding opportunity is like, I can't quite see it in my mind's eye yet. For other categories like fashion, could I take a Gucci, you know, handbag and create kind of a, a cartoon 3D version for a metaverse Roblox experience that's cool enough that I get an impression with the customer that gets them, you know, sort of uh, enamored with my brand? I think yeah. so. I mean, I, I think clothing, shoes, you know, uh, you know, Coke and Pepsi will be in there. And, you know, <laughs> like that all makes sense to me. For our category, I I think realism and and real application is 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 important for this category, but I think for other categories it makes more sense. So I also think the idea of um, like you know we're also sort of arguing about like what is kind of the metaverse. To me, I think my 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 thinking is that it's going to be more like a network, right? It's not going to be big. I mean, you'll have the Robloxes and the you know places like that, but you won't. It'll be more about uh, being able to jump from one person's independent metaverse space to another person, almost like you hyperlink between website pages, right? Right, right. That it'll be more about individually or smaller groups that are, that are creating um, these interesting experiences and jumping from one to one rather than this sort of like giant universal space we're all walking around in. But that's, I mean, I'm hoping it looks more like that. Yeah, in in my mind, I think the event industry is probably going to jump on, and because they are probably going to be making a lot of money with that, and that's probably the next thing for them. Uh, so in my mind, you know, they are probably going to be okay because they probably have ROI. They are going to be charging a lot, and they can do the revenue competition easily. But then they have to invite other brands to participate in the virtual experience. But the virtual experience is are going to require the similar design assets that you need to have to be able to create yeah. that experience. To me, though, I mean, we're using the term metaverse pretty broadly. To me, that's like a hosted virtual space that we go to for a specific instance. Like to be meta, so to speak, you have to be able to move right, right between places. I mean, to me, that's just a product that somebody uses to go attend the event. Yeah. That's yeah. That's not a metaverse. That the metaverse is where you can actually jump and, and travel seamlessly between, you know, any experience, right? That's that's how I kind of see it. But I you know, for the for the for our manufacturers or our partners, investing in the three D content management system, investing in asset creation, investing in, you know, data models that support applications are all yeah. precursors to whatever happens in the metaverse anyway, and you're using it for other use cases. So imagining what will happen in metaverse is perfectly fine for, you know, the home category. Um, you should, you have to still make the same investments anyway. So why not imagine, you know, what it could be? Exactly. And that's what I would feel as well, that probably, you know, the configurator and, and 3D experience is going to be 3D and metaverse is probably going to be 10D. I don't know how many Ds are going to be there, but, you know, it's probably going to be the next level. <laughs> yeah, 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 good. Okay, amazing. So that's it for today. Do you have any last minute closing advice for our listeners by any chance? 
Um, uh, first of all, thank you. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the conversation. Um, I think the uh, the biggest piece of advice I would I would give people who are looking at moving into this space is don't get so enamored with the application right away or the specific use case because that's pretty easy to do because you could spend a lot of time and energy and find yourself having to do a bunch of rework. I would you know think about something that's scalable and extensible and that and that's really what we try to do for the market with our product is like let's get let's build a foundation so that when you start to invest in what you know whatever you're going to do today AR VR whatever that 3D search is coming right there's all sorts of things coming and so make sure that you're investing in a foundation that will allow you to grow without creating tremendous amounts of overhead that's that would really be my major piece of advice and what I talked to you know clients and prospects about every day. Yeah, could not agree more. And my personal uh, takeaway from this conversation is going to be find the category. Finding the right category is probably going to be super critical in enabling that experience. And if you don't have the right category, then probably uh, that might fire back and you might think that completely doesn't work. But if you have the right category, that's where you are going to get much higher conversion rate and the improvement in returns as uh, Beck has already pointed out on that note. Well, from from 2011 when we started to 2015, we did every category you can imagine. We did Batman, actually a Batman program, shoes, books, fashion, and we tested and tested and tested and tested. You know, we thought, you know, a lot of those categories would work. And so unfortunately, there's a lot of trial and error, but um, but uh, hopefully, we're, you know, we're we're now all starting to understand where the biggest opportunities are. But but thank you again. I really appreciate it and uh, be happy to do it again. Of course. Amazing. Thank you so much uh, for your time. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about back, head over to markstrent.com. It's M-A-R-X-E-N-T.com. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you in your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Kurt Anderson from B2B Tail, who touches on why growth extends beyond sales and marketing. Also, the interview with Brian Beck from Enciba, who shares key trends in B2B e-commerce, including the rise of Amazon's prominence in B2B product research in Bonnie. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you, and I hope to catch you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.